Welcome to Mediation Today, a program brought to you by Vesnatsa Tichanin, a Canberra lawyer and mediator. Every episode introduces an experienced Australian mediator to talk about mediation training, development, ethics and practice. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the ACT land, the Ngunnawal people. My guest in mediation today is Dr. Samantha Hardy. Good morning, Samantha, and welcome to my show. Thank you, Vesna. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Samantha holds a PhD in law and conflict resolution, as well as other postgraduate qualifications in education. She has been accredited as a mediator under the Australian National Mediation System and is a certified transformative mediator by the U.S. Institute of Conflict Transformation. She is a certified narrative coach practitioner, an experienced conflict coach, and the founder of the REAL Conflict Coaching System. Samantha, it is my great pleasure to have this opportunity to interview you. I'd like to start with some of your personal background. Who is Dr. Samantha Hardy in private life? I think the thing that first comes to mind is that I'm the mum to a very strong-willed six-year-old who tests me on my negotiation and conflict management skills every single day. I'm also an avid reader. I love to read and I post regularly on social media book reviews and people are always asking me, how do you read so many books? I'm like, I'm a fast reader and it's what I do for pleasure. I'm a beginning gardener. We just moved into a property on in the bottom of the Adelaide Hills with a large garden with fruit trees, and so I'm learning how to look after those. Uh, I used to be a frequent traveller before having my daughter and then COVID, of course, and I thought I'd share with you one interesting little-known fact about me. About 10 years ago, I lived in a Buddhist temple for six months and worked on a Buddhist peace project, so that was a very interesting experience in my life. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, when I was about, I think it was about 40, I had uh, a gap year. You know how most people have them at at 18? I had mine at 40. And um, (laughs) I I had it, I'd finished up on one job and I had another job starting. And I thought, I'm just going to ask them if I can delay my start for a year. I know it's very cheeky, but maybe they'll say yes. And they did. So I took a year off and I went and worked on a youth peace project. So it was the subtitle of it was Peace In, Peace Out. And it was looking at inner peace. So how, how young people could learn mindfulness meditation as a way of developing their inner peace. And then I contributed the outer peace um, side of it, so educating young people all around the world on how to have constructive conflict, how to interact with people around difficult things. And it was in a, a, a Buddhist framework, but the, the content wasn't, wasn't especially religious. It was very practical. Wow, that sounds really interesting. How did you live there for six months? In, in the on the premises? Oh, they actually gave me a very small apartment just outside the temple ground, so I didn't live in. Uh, they had an area in the temple for the the male monks, and then they had an area for the women. This is in Thailand. The women were called ubasikas, so they're not exactly oh. nuns, but they're part of the temple community. So I was basically an honorary ubasika. Uh, I had to wear white every 
day, but I had a very small apartment with air conditioning, which was a, a luxury compared with people in the temple, just outside the temple gates. And they gave me a bicycle. So I would ride into the temple each day and work in a little shipping container office, helping them develop this training program. So I worked with Buddhist monks and Ubasakas and some lay people as well. But it was great. I got to go to all the ceremonies and Met, met lots of very interesting monks and other people from all over the world. It was a really great experience. Mm. How did you decide to follow the path of a mediator? And then later on you became a coach and trainer and peacemaker. Tell us yes. about that, please. Well, I started out life as a lawyer. So straight out of school, I did a law degree and I was working as a litigation lawyer. I did that for about five years after university. And I started to become a little bit disillusioned about the legal system. Even when my clients won their case in court, they often didn't feel that good about it. Even when they won significant amounts of money, they often had lingering resentment and felt like they hadn't had control of the process. They weren't particularly happy with the outcome. There were things that they wanted to say that they didn't have a chance to say. And around that time, I was I did a Master's of Law and part of the Master's was a subject called Alternative Dispute Resolution. And we had the option, if we were interested, to do an extra two days training to get our certification as a mediator. This was in 1997, so before the national standards. Yes. And it was called a Certificate Three in Community Mediation. That was the only certification that was available then. So I did it and I had like like an epiphany <laughs> that this was so much a better way of managing conflict and getting people to, to resolve it on their own terms in their own way that I decided I was going to quit my job as a lawyer and I was going to become a mediator, much to the horror of my family and friends. But in 1997, there weren't, there weren't jobs as mediators. It wasn't the same as it is now where you can have a practice and, a, and mediation is becoming an, a norm in workplaces and family and other other contexts. So I soon found that I couldn't I couldn't get a full-time job as a mediator. So I went back to university and did a PhD um, studying conflict and different ways to manage conflict. And I started teaching mediation and related dispute resolution subjects within law schools and starting up a small private practice doing mediation on the side. And then as it became more popular, I increased the practice side and decreased the university side. Yeah, so that's how I got into the field. I started coaching because I realised counterintuitively in recent years, people have started to think of mediation as something formal, as something that they're either not willing to engage in or they don't feel prepared to engage in. So I started looking at ways to work one-on-one with people to help them either manage the conflict themselves without mediation or anything else or to help them prepare for mediation so that they felt like, you know, they were able to engage more effectively. Uh, And I did a few different conflict coach training courses and they were all really good, but they didn't... they didn't click with me Um, so what I did I used a lot of the research I did from my PhD and I developed my own conflict coaching system which I now train I've trained over a thousand people to be real conflict coaches the REAL stands for real and stands for reflection engagement artistry and learning there are four philosophical underpinnings so we, we support our clients to engage in reflection we support them to engage in conflict as appropriate you know sometimes it's not safe but so far as appropriate we help them to aspire towards artistry so not just doing the bare minimum but trying to add value to however they engage and whatever they do and the l is for learning we want people to learn from their conflict experiences and you know develop skills to manage them better in the future 
So these days I do a lot of coaching, a lot of training. I do a lot of professional development training for mediators and leaders and managers to help them develop their conflict management, conflict resolution skills. You've mentioned that you are a university educator as well, and you're holding adjunct professorial appointments in Australia, Singapore, Hong Kong and the USA. What drives you to run so many aspects of your business and how do you fit them all into your life? (laughs) That's a very good question. For me, all the different things that I do inform each other. So my research helps me to understand and improve my practice. My practice provides challenges that inspire me to do research and also case studies that I can use, obviously, in a de-identified way for teaching. And teaching always provides opportunities for reflection. So for me, all of those things together they enhance one another and I also think having a variety avoids burnout if I had to just coach every day all day or mediate every day all day I think I could get into bad habits I could get really tired and run down so having variety also I think keeps me energized how do I fit them all in (laughs) a lot more easily before I had a child it's harder now because my you know my child has to take priority and she's um, been sick a lot and so you know I'm forever having to take time off to look after her so these days I think it's about balance I'm quite selective about what I say yes to I make sure that what I say yes to aligns with my values and my purpose and I also have developed some really good systems to streamline the parts of my work that are not the best used to of my time to do manually or repeatedly. So I think being selective and having good systems in place um, allows me to do that. And I think it sounds really strange, but I think COVID has actually given people a lot more flexibility and people are a lot more understanding these days. If you do have to reschedule or rearrange things, people understand that life happens, whereas maybe before COVID we were a little less forgiving about that. And I think that's in line with the whole philosophy of mediation or philosophy that underpins mediation about being understanding and about allowing people to have their space and allowing people to do things in a way that maybe sometime before, as you say, would be looked on strangely on. Yes, I think that's right. I think it's it's given us an opportunity to show compassion for others and also a bit of self-compassion to give ourselves a break if we can't do everything today, you know. Absolutely, absolutely. Before we stop for our musical break and we hear what your musical wish is, could I just take you back to the topic of your PhD and if you could just give us a, a few sentences about that and what was your field sure. of research and, and the title? Sure. Sure. So I looked at the stories that people told about their conflict. So it's a very narrative focused PhD. What I was interested in was how people talk to themselves and others about the conflicts they were experiencing and how the way they told themselves the story of their conflict either supported them to be constructive in the way that they managed it or worked against them and made them sort of helpless passive victims. So I interviewed a whole lot of people who had been involved in conflict And I I didn't really interview them. I asked them to tell me what happened and then I just let them talk. And what I found was there were two distinct types of stories. There were the stories where they were the helpless victim, someone else was the bad guy, they did terrible things to them and made them suffer and they wanted justice. The bad guy had to get his comeuppance and they needed to have their virtue recognised and restored to make the world right again. Those people often weren't managing their conflict very well because they were 
they were almost in this this fantasy world of you know I'm entirely good the other person's entirely bad and this justice someone mm. should make sure that justice happens the people who were much more resilient and much more effective at managing their conflicts understood that conflict is a complex scenario there are a lot of uncertainties to a certain extent our choices may be constrained. We don't always get to get exactly what we want, but we do have a lot of choices along the way about how we react or respond to things that happen. So there was a sense of agency that people had mm. some clear idea of what they could and couldn't control and then took positive steps to try and work on what they could control to make the situation as, as good as possible in the circumstances. And then I looked at how mediation and coaching could support people who were in that stuck story to move into the more open, constructive story. Beautiful. And I'm sure that all those narratives and all those stories have, in a way, enlarged your understanding or increased your understanding of, of various situations people find themselves in. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the, the basic plot line is often the same. You just change the names of the characters, the setting changes from workplace to family to friendship. But the basic plot line for those dysfunctional conflict stories and the constructive ones are, are the same. Hmm. And they're, they're things that we can help people work on. Let's now have a little breather and allow everyone to somehow reflect on what you were just saying. What's your first musical wish? Oh, Vesna, which one should I choose? I gave you four and I think I only need two. <laughs> uh, yes. How about um, how about the Kev Carmody and Paul Kelly's From Little Things, Big Things Grow? I love that um, song for so many reasons. It's about not giving up. It's about little steps turning into something big. It's about acting in alignment with your values and believing when you believe something's really important, even though it seems like a really, really big task, little steps towards it can make a significant difference in improving things. And sometimes they turn into really big things. Dear listeners, in today's episode, my guest is Dr. Samantha Hardy. Samantha, could you let me and our listeners hear a little bit more about your practice? In one of your posts somewhere, I've read that you said peace is not the absence of conflict, but peace is what happens when we manage conflict well. And I think that what you were saying about those narratives that, that you heard while doing your PhD fully support that. Tell us about it a little bit more about this sentence. I think one of the things that gets in the way of people engaging effectively with conflict is that people tend to think of it as a bad thing, something that shouldn't happen, something that should be prevented or avoided at all costs. But that's not actually realistic. Conflict is a natural part of life and it can be used appropriately, can be managed well so that it it gives people benefits. It creates a lot of opportunities if we manage it well. When we think of it as something bad, when we think of it as something that should not happen, we're not motivated to learn more about it and to engage with it. But as I said, people will always have different perspectives, different ideas, different needs. If everyone agreed all the time, well, maybe life would be easy, but it would be kind of boring and nothing would ever change. We wouldn't grow or develop or learn as individuals, as societies. 
So I think suppressing or denying conflict is just as damaging as conflict itself. And in fact, in many cases, it's more damaging than engaging with the conflict and maybe getting it wrong because it it festers and simmers along and then blows up into something that's impossible to manage. I think we should also not just think about avoiding the risks of conflict, we should think about the potential benefits that conflict provides. And when conflict is managed well, it creates opportunities for people to understand each other better, to make deeper connections, to grow, to come up with creative and innovative ideas for moving forward. So I think I think conflict needs a little bit of a makeover in everybody's mind. We need to think of it as something that that could actually be quite good if we manage it well, if we ask for support, if we do some learning, if we do some practice, if we take ourselves a little bit out of our comfort zone, you might be surprised at what you can actually achieve from conflict. Mm. Is that what drives you out of bed every morning? (laughs) (laughs) I think so. I mean, I do have a real belief that we need to give conflict a makeover. We need to support people not to be afraid of it, to learn about it and be able to engage with it in a way that creates opportunities. I mean, if we could do this on a grand scale, (laughs) world peace might actually be possible. I think... Um, What's also really important for me is helping people work towards artistry in whatever they do. And by that I mean helping people to be to aspire to be more than just adequate, to be more than just an adequate conflict manager or to be more than just an adequate conflict resolution practitioner or mediator. I really believe in continually reflecting on what we do and why, learning new concepts and techniques, and critically analysing the accepted norms and assuring that they align with our values and, you know, that we're practising what we preach. And I think at the moment... My specific version of that passion is helping people to understand how emotions impact on conflict and vice versa and how we can learn to work with emotions to support constructive engagement. We hear a lot about just get the emotions out of it. Everyone just needs to be rational. Again, I think we lose something really valuable when we do that. So I'm doing a lot of work on educating people and training practitioners to learn more about how emotions work and to be able to work with them rather than against them in managing conflict. And it's probably one of the things that we need to learn from very early stage in life to recognize our emotions. Yes, and we're not very good at it. And a lot of the training that's out there these days is based on very outdated research. Mm. You know, we talk about things like the the lizard brain and the mammal brain. That sort of work has actually been really developed significantly in recent years with the use of technologies like MRI imaging. Um, and so there's a lot of really good new research that gives people a better understanding and a whole new range of skills that we can use to help us work with our emotions to manage conflict constructively. So my mission at the moment is to get that out there, (laughs) to make Mm. sure that people know about it um, and start practicing it. With all of this, Samantha, I'm sad to say that we are nearing the end of our program. Uh, Look, there's never enough time to talk about these things, but it has been a joy to talk about it so far. But we haven't finished yet. I, I, there are a couple of things. First, for the end, I'd really like you to give our listeners a thought or a line, a mantra that is at the heart of your beliefs, please. Absolutely. That is 
conflict can be good and bad and it's how you think about it and then choose to manage it that makes all the difference. Mm, sounds simple but so complicated and can be very complex. Yes, but it's something that we can all learn to do. Yes. It's, it's not impossible. It's a little bit different from what we might do intuitively day to day, but there are many people out there who can support you. Conflict coaches can help you one-on-one -on -one to support your skills and your confidence to engage in constructive ways. Mediators can help if you need help to have a conversation with someone and put that into practice in a conflict situation. There are so many people out there who can help you um, and who are usually very passionate about helping people to do that. So true, Samantha. Please allow me to invite you for another episode. Sometime in the future, when you have a good topic, please give me a call and we'll share it with our listeners. I would love that. Thank you so much, Vesna. Thank you.